week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm trying to talk as if I'm going under anesthesia today because that's our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Block, who is an anesthesiologist. You know, anesthesiologists are are kind of like unicorns. You rarely see them. <laughs> I, well, but by the time they make you start counting backwards, you don't really make it to five. <laughs> I know. I know. They Greetings, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel yet through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. And today we're going to learn about a little bit about anesthesia and maybe dis- discuss some plant... Uh, botany and how plants are related to medicine. But first, before I introduce Dr. Block, uh, Christina, if people want to get in touch with us, how would they do that? Well, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, now, to do this is very simple. You can do it any time. That uh, it could be a year from now, it could be half a year from now. So, not to worry. We will definitely make sure that we are able to get it over to our guest or Dr. Woolman uh, to be able to answer your question. Now, you can do that, or if you're listening to this as a podcast, you can actually call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK, and be sure to leave your callback number or the way you'd like us to get in touch with you, and again, we will pass your message on. Thank you so much, Dr. Woolman. Uh, You're welcome, and thank you. And we really look forward to hearing from people uh, with uh, replies and questions and suggestions for future shows. So uh, keep sending in those uh, letters and uh, calling us. We're happy about that. So Dr. Jeffrey Block is an anesthesiologist. He's board-certified anesthesiologist. And he did some things in his career that set new standards for his field. And at, uh, consequently, at one point, he was selected to America's top anesthesiologist. And that's got to be an interesting discussion we'll have for a few moments, maybe. But Dr. Block also has a few other uh, talents. He's an internationally renowned and highly awarded horticulturist and a master gardener. So his knowledge of plants uh, and then his use in uh, medicine and anesthesiology, I think, are going to be a nice discussion today. And we're going to have the opportunity to talk to him about a subject that most people don't get to talk about, anesthesia. A lot of us have had surgeries, but we rarely get a chance to talk to the anesthesiologist. So a lot of things right now hopefully will come out of this that will help anybody that's going to be uh, looking forward to a surgical procedure in their future requiring some form of anesthesia. So Jeff and I are actually alumni. He's the president of the alumni uh of the alumni of the medical school that we both went to, the Leonard Miller School of Medicine. For me, it was the University of Miami, and for Jeff, when we both went there, it was the University of Miami. But 
that's changed now. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my colleague and friend, Dr. Jeff Block. Hello, Jeff. Hi there, Glenn. Hi, Christina. Hello, Dr. Block. How are you today? Oh, it's a beautiful day. I'm in South Florida, so a few hours before you, but the sun's shining and, and everything's growing beautifully. Oh, that sounds wonderful. We'll be there. <laughs> oh, you say that to everybody. You're going to be in so many places Isn't at the same wonderful? time. Isn't that wonderful? I know. <laughs> it's very good. The live interview. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. So, Jeff, as the medical guide, I like to tell our viewers where we're going to go. We want to talk a little bit about uh, your early uh, life and, and what got you into botany and plant, interest in plants and medicine and anesthesia. And then we want to spend some time, quality time, on actual information that people can learn about your field, maybe the history of anesthesia a little bit, and what they need to know and what might be some good suggestions for anyone that's planning on having a surgery, what the uh, things they should hopefully try and talk to their anesthesiologist about. And then we'll move forward and we will have just an open discussion. How's that sound for you? Sounds wonderful. Fire away. Fire away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So let's talk about uh, the early years, the early when Jeff was Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> well, Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey is something my mother would call me and not my friends. But uh, the early years were actually an influence to me even before medical school because, in fact, it is my mom's side of a family that grew up with plants down here in Florida. And uh, growing up as a young man, I was sort of fascinated by what I was seeing outside long before medical school, so I sort of put myself to task even as a high school student and found out what chlorophyll looked like, which is remarkably, by the way, like hemoglobin once I got to medical school and found out. But from the background of having family that were interested way back in the late 1940s and early 50s here in Miami, uh, my grandmother owned one of the first flower shops down there before there was an industry to go shopping at where like your Home Depot's now you pick up whatever you want. They were pretty. They were easy to grow down here. Friends who visited from up north and places afar saw we were doing all year round and were envious. So <laughs> I figured uh, I'd take it to task. And before I knew about people health, I really became more familiar with plant health. Do you find that plants and people are similar? You talked about chlorophyll and hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is obviously something we all know on this show. Uh, it brings the oxygen around, and it's vital to our lives. Is the chlorophyll that same way with plants? Well, chlorophyll is the lifeblood of plants, but when you talk about talking with plants, that's the, probably the best example. The plants don't really talk back to you at all. And for that matter, neither do patients when they're asleep. But the fact is, if, if you're looking at the plants, they will tell you absolutely how well they're doing. It's just the art of observation. That's what all good doctors do, regardless of specialty. Mm. And as a result, the plants just scream out to me if they're happy or sad. And uh, in that sense, uh, the chlorophyll hemoglobin analogy you were just bringing out is I will be happy to share with you what they really do look like because molecular-wise, they're remarkably similar. You don't have to be a chemist to look at the two molecules side by side and to see just how similar we are in terms of our lifeblood and chlorophyll, the plant's lifeblood, really designating how we get our energy throughout our bodies. Do you, do you think you might have been a plant in another lifetime? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think we all probably were. Seriously, if you look at evolution, not just coevolution between human beings and plants, but even before human beings were human beings, plants were around for millions and millions and millions of years before. So genetically, in fact, many of the molecules that we have in our bodies plants have in a very similar way. There's a whole family of medicines derived from alkaloids that come from plants that are used therapeutically. And even if you look in terms of medicine, how important those particular chemicals are, 1948, the Nobel Prize was just in that, plant alkaloid chemistry, and how important it's been ever since to healthcare and, and the pharmaceutical industry in particular. For those that don't know about the alkaloids, give a couple of examples of things we may know about that are alkaloids that are plant-based and used in medicine today. Well, it just depends on what you really call a medicine, doesn't it? Because you can go to medicines that are, for instance, uh, chemotherapy agents derived from periwinkles. Vincristine is, is, is a good example of that. Or quinine. Quinine derived from chinchona. It's a bark off of a tree in the East Andes and uh, brought back to Europe as a potential cure for finding out what you're going to do about malaria and, mm. and the different insects there. There's two good examples. But you don't even have to look at medicines the way we call them medicines today from thinking of a pharmaceutical medicine. You could look at things that we take every day that we derive a certain feeling of that changes our chemistry because caffeine, there's a good example of, of an alkaloid. Chocolate, <laughs> another one. Uh, nicotine. Another drug that's not a drug, but it is having absolute effects. They're all plant alkaloids. And so in an extension, even from there, uh, probably the one that's, that would be best understood, also the opiates uh, derive the same way. And they interact with receptors in our bodies in ways that probably date way, way back to before we knew what a receptor was, which is where they react in our body. And these are all plant alkaloid-derived medicines today. Very nice. So you, so you get to medical school. Uh, you finally decide you're going to be a doctor. You're not going to be a uh, botanist, uh, at least at this point. And you decide to go to medical school. What interested you in going into anesthesia as a career? Well, num number one, it was a field at the time I went into it was an up-and-coming field for an American-trained uh, anesthesiologist. It was a field that in previous years, decades, were originally started by nurses. Nurses as chair-side assistants in dentistry, and then from surgeons as somebody so that the surgeon could pay attention, say, to a belly procedure. Nurses, in fact, were the first givers of anesthetics when there had to be somebody up by the head area to care about airways. And in, in long-ago times, 100-plus years ago, ether, one of the first anesthetics, was dropped in liquids, and people would breathe it in, and that's what had them go off into what we call anesthetic levels of surgical anesthesia. And the ether is, in fact, the first commonly understood uh, general anesthetic that we think of today as being a gas. We're going to get more into the anesthesia part, but what I'd like to do, I think, uh, knowing you and speaking with you, why don't you give us a little bit of a history of anesthesia itself as a career, as a, as a profession, as part of medicine? How did it start? Where did it start? And where is it today? And then we'll get into more specifics about... Go ahead. 
I, I love starting from the beginning because, in a sense, when I lecture medical students, one of the first things I try to let them know about is, is if you don't know where you came from, how are you going to know where you're really at right now? And, right. and unless you know where you're at, how are you going to figure out how to get to where you want to go? So in terms of an education sense, the history is absolutely critical because if you looked way back, and I'm not even talking that far back, but before the middle 19th century, anesthesia really wasn't really part of part of the vernacular because people didn't have surgery because it hurt too much. And in fact, most even plant-derived medicines for, for uh, pain relief or for other psychotropic effects that might have helped pain, people didn't have surgery. Surgery was limited in a barbaric way to maybe amputations, uh, perhaps some crude C-sections, and very often a mother or a child might not have survived. Um, so the surgery wasn't surgery really because people would not want to go through that painful experience. And then, in fact, the very first, as I was mentioning ether a moment ago, Ether had been around for a couple hundred years. They knew what it was or how to synthesize it, but was completely unknown as anything other than uh, a chemical derived that was just sort of a curiosity because it's a liquid when it's stored inside a vessel in a container, like a can. But if you open up that can, it immediately turns to a vapor, into a gas. And so what was known in the middle 1800s was that not unlike today with, with young students who were bright and maybe knew how to synthesize something as far as in science class, it was known as a recreational drug. In fact, it was taken, a, a, a hit on it, so to speak, breathe some in, and then from that point you get dizzy, maybe fall down, pass out, and it was recreational. Also around that same time was nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide still used today by dentists in particular and commonly known as laughing gas, had that same kind of an effect. So there were recreational drugs, so to speak, although not alkaloids in this situation, but gases that when people breathe them, they would lose consciousness. And the fact is that in the early, early to mid-1800s, in the 1840s in particular, it was a medical student today that gets accredited for having first documented the first actual use of ether as an anesthetic. And uh, would you like to know a little more about that? It's a great story. Yeah, great story. Give it to us. Uh, but I do like the idea of considering something as a recreational drug, something that makes you dizzy, lightheaded, uh, fall down and pass out. Sounds like a great recreation to me. <laughs> well, and it was in the days because in the 1840s, in this case, in rural Georgia, Georgia State, you had doctors who were apprentices who would walk around with their old country doc and learn medicine that way. And when it came time after hours to party, the, uh, the doc very often in those situations had access to ether. And in the verbiage of the day, the parties were called ether frolics. <laughs> and it took one particular anesthesiologist-to-be, not knowing it at the time, by the name of Crawford Long, in Georgia to simply observe some friends of his during the partying, take some of the ether, and basically in passing out, maybe do what we would commonly consider a prank fall, and then the kind of thing where you go, oh, my God, that must hurt. And as their friend wakes up, they say, no, didn't hurt. That was a eureka moment. <laughs> That's the kind of time where we figured, hey, maybe we got something there. So, in fact, 
he he talked to a friend of his named Venable, last name, to get him to excise a cyst off of his neck and under the ether, and eventually wrote it up and gets full credit as far as the original first use of ether as a surgical anesthetic from a lowly country doc in in Georgia as a student in a recreational sense. That then paved the way for modern anesthesia. And my understanding, that's a great story, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, March 30th, a special date in medicine, right? It sure is. It's called Doctor's Day. And they chose Doctor's Day out of all the possibilities in the world of, of things that's happened in medicine. And that's partic that particular day, why was it chosen? That's the date of the discovery of ether. The, the women's auxiliary in the county of Georgia where this happened in the 1930s had to figure some way to recognize Dr. Crawford Long, by that point gone, for all the good. And they wanted to try to figure what was one sentinel event that they could refer to that might be best representative of the compassion and kindness needed to alleviate pain in your fellow human being. And so for that reason... Later on, and it wasn't, I believe, until the 1990s that it was officially designated as Doctor's Day, that's the date that was chosen in recognition of that sentinel event in medicine history. Why do you think that's such a sentinel event? Without that discovery, we wouldn't have virtually any of the massive surgical specialties we have. It allowed us a way to go in and look inside the body where specialties derived from just that. And it's one thing to be something that alleviates pain in a compassionate way, but it's something very different that allowed us to look deep inside ourselves in ways that before that we had no chance of doing. Uh, Post-mortems were done. There was a fairly good understanding of anatomy. But after, after the body dies, it doesn't have the same secrets of information as far as healing powers and things. It's simply an anatomical reference point. This is a way to study the body in its living state. Uh, yes. So you talked about consciousness before, and anesthesia, anesthesiologists have to do with consciousness. Can you give us a dis your description of what consciousness, consciousness is and what happens during anesthesia? Where do people go? Well... People commonly confuse three different words, Glenn, and anesthesia is one of them. And strictly speaking, it means no sensation or no feeling. But there's amnesia, analgesia, and anesthesia. And amnesia means no memory. And so there are many medicines that can basically take your memory from being that astute, and yet you're not unconscious with no feeling the way you might be with an anesthetic. Analgesia is more like what you get when you take an aspirin or an Advil where you get pain relief, but that has nothing to do with effects on memory or necessarily or not being able to feel. So those are three different words, conceptually different. Anesthesia, meaning no feeling, is really what we're talking about here. And along with it, with the mechanism in which it works, an anesthetic actually is not just sleep where you're not aware of something. You're actually, there's a controlled way under a doctor's care of actually being unconscious so that it's not normal sleep. It's so much deeper that, in fact, there's very little, if any, recollection when someone's under an anesthetic. And, and so we all know that when you're sleeping at night, 
you generally tend to know how long you've been asleep. Not so with an anesthetic. You could be out for five minutes or, or five days and really would have no recollection either way. So where does consciousness fit in for you? you you're talking to someone when you're about to put them under anesthesia. First, they're conscious. And then where do they go after that as you induce them? That's a great question because many people think, oh, I saw my anesthesiologist in a preoperative area. Next thing I know, I was waking up in a recovery room. Um, a skilled anesthesiologist, while someone is fully awake, will absolutely answer questions and reassure a patient who comes to a hospital because that patient, understandably, has a lot of things to be concerned about. Maybe there's a diagnosis that they don't know what will become after a biopsy is done. Maybe there's someone who they know who previously had a similar type of procedure and complained that it hurt or they had an upset stomach afterwards. There's mm -hmm. a lot of issues. Maybe it's someone who just has never had the, the feeling of confidence in another human being to entrust so someone's life for even that brief period of time. So when an anesthesiologist meets a patient and they're first being introduced, in relatively short order, that skilled anesthesiologist will address the patient's anxieties, fears, and then, in a very compassionate way, with making one statement that has to re resonate with the patient, reassuring that they'll be taken very good care of when, when they're awakened, they'll already have something to deal either with nausea or pain or what an issue might present itself with, and that um, when they're going to wake up, this will all be behind them, and they'll get on with things in a positive way. Those kinds of positive um, affirmations are what I would love to see all patients have in their head, because at the moment that the patient can absorb that and take that with them, then a first medicine, which is not an anesthetic, but an amnestic, is something that can really help relax there's a medicine we use pretty much every day called Versed. That's a, a generic name, a brand name for midazolam. It's in the same family as Valium. But from the time it's given, many people, when they get it intravenously, may have a short period of time that they don't really recall riding on a, a stretcher or a gurney to an operating room or going from the gurney bed to an operating bed where, where most people, if they remember the bright lights above, then they start, sort of recall something in a bad sci-fi movie, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. associated with an operating room. Patients don't need to remember details about that. So the amnestic before someone goes into a, a hospital's operating room is very helpful because then once they're asleep with the anesthetic, that's the induction, the surgery, and then waking up, they are all in an unconscious state. They're subconscious as far as memory when they first come to the operating room, but unconscious during the surgery. That's why they're not waking up during that time. But when it's time to wake up, and that's the way we make a living, not going, having people go to sleep, but making sure they wake up. If their first conscious state is now in a recovery room and they have no memory of anything else other than simply having that reaffirming good positive thought put in their head by their anesthesia provider in a preoperative area, then, wow, it's over with. It's just like they told me. You know, I, I didn't know anything happened. Someone who wakes up with that last positive thought is far less likely to, to feel something that, that at that point may legitimately be a difference from an incision, a, a, a spot that could ache or hurt, but they're much less likely because of not being stressed like they were when they were first starting 
of waking up and having that particular stimulus of pain get the better of them. So in fact, they need less medicines when they're recovering in a recovery room if they start with that mindset, and they just frankly do better. You know, my one of my brothers is a pilot, and he always said to me in the training, you always had to have an equal number of takeoffs and landings. And I would say that it seems like an anesthesia. You have to have an equal number of going to sleep and waking up, right? Yeah, well, you know what? The going to sleep, like we said, that that's, if any pilot will also tell you the same analogy. You, you have in an anesthetic very much akin to, to a flight, where if you even look at the cockpit in an airplane and you look at the anesthesia equipment that you'll see very often behind and immediately accessible to the medical doctor who's the anesthesiologist, you'll see that there's a lot of parallels. And, and one parallel is that you have a takeoff with the flight and you have what we would call an induction when someone first goes to sleep. And then, of course, you have the flight itself, whether it's an autopilot or the anesthetic itself for the surgical experience. The real magic and the secret is in the landing. Because <laughs> the landing and what we would otherwise call the emergence in surgery, that is, in fact, the one part of the case that is potentially most perilous. And so that's why good pilots, they practice touch and goes on the landing so that right. if your landing is not perfect, get ready to take off again. And good anesthesiologists now have to know also as someone's coming to, if it's not a smooth landing that way, how to go right back under and take a second pass. The landing is really where the money's at. That's how we make a living too. Wow. And so the parallels with flying an airplane and delivering an anesthetic are absolutely very similar. What do you think is, what do you think is the biggest fear that people have, not just about the surgery, but about anesthesia? Fear of the unknown, fear of letting go. Mm. Um, there, there's a lot of trust that has to happen first. And, and some people naturally are very trusting, but others aren't necessarily. And so that's why to get an understanding and to develop in just fairly short order a good relationship with a patient. It's a bona fide doctor-patient relationship. This is not just somebody who's a technician. There's an art and a skill in speaking and understanding what a patient needs to know. And it makes all the difference in the way they wake up as well. So as a good example of that, if, if in my career I had to recruit a physician to join a practice uh, in anesthesia, it wouldn't necessarily be the department chairman from where that physician trained. It would very often be the recovery room nurses who see how that particular doctor's patients wake up. Because waking up is, in fact, the evidence of what happened before the patient got their very first sedative. And, and, and that kind of reassurance manifests itself in a recovery room for a far better patient recovery. Mm. So, so I have a question, Jeff which is, uh, I've only been under once before. I never had a chance to meet my anesthesiologist. It was like, here I am on the bed, and all I could remember was this gorgeous eyes behind this mask, <laughs> having a nice little chat and saying, oh, just count backwards from 10. I'm thinking, who are you? <laughs> and well, next thing you know, I'm out, and I'm waking up, of course, in, you know, in the post-op room, and it's like, wow, that was an interesting moment that felt like a few seconds ago. Now, here in the U.S., because that was in Canada, here in the U.S., is it 
Is it uh, customary that people who are going to go into surgery actually meet their anesthesiologist beforehand? They should, 100%. And it's got more to do with knowing what the safe plan for you is. Your pilot knows the conditions that are around of not just simply the weather in front, but in fact the airplane. And in a sense that you are uh, our airplane, you're you're our vehicle, you're what we're flying from start to finish. The, the, The introduction is nice, but I would venture to say that if you didn't have someone who could answer your questions, including about if you're going to be waking up, say, is anything going to feel different? Is it going to hurt? Things like that. Those are absolutely important things that you have to know beforehand. So it's not a surprise as someone's recovering, saying, it's over. Oh, now I hurt. That's something that if, in mm. fact, you have the advanced knowledge of, you'll know how to gauge it as you're coming through. And fortunately, you've come through at that point to be able to feel, see, speak. And and bring that to the attention of the nice nurses that will probably be with you in a recovery room. The answer is yes. And and there are some procedures which admittedly, not just safer, but a very short timing may in fact just have been a sedative. Mm. And you would think that you're totally asleep unconscious when in fact you're just in a deep sleep and amnestic. That's different than a full anesthetic, which Mm. you would need for certain procedures when you're actually unconscious. And when you're unconscious, one of the most important things that's different from when you're simply sedated is that you need to have your breathing protected, controlled, and otherwise taken care of. That's mm. the probably the first and most important part of when someone is unconscious of what has to happen. You have to breathe in order to live. And if you're awake, you would know that if you can't breathe, nothing else matters. <laughs> if you even wake up. <laughs> you know, oh you both gosh. bring up a very good point uh, it seems like anesthesia is a very critical part of surgery, as we've agreed to at this point. Why is it that people only see their anesthesiologist 10 minutes before? Should we be able to pick our anesthesiologist? Should we have a, a consultation with them days before the surgery? Why is it that we do it this way, and should there be changes, or is it okay this way? Well... I'll answer your questions from a a political economic perspective as well as what may be an ideal setting. First of all, from a a economics perspective, as well as legitimate reasons for health care, unlike years ago, when patients came to the hospital, maybe even several days before a planned surgical event, you don't necessarily have the luxury of, of being at the hospital and meeting the provider days before Uh, for all but some surgical procedures. Now, we are also, as an anesthesia practice, responsible for that because it was found out that hospitals are actually relatively dangerous places to just hang out if you don't have to be there. (laughs) There's bad germs that are happening there. And, in fact, for economics as well as safety purposes, hospitals are places that you don't want to be any longer than you absolutely have to be there for. And then there's also um, issues of when someone is coming to the hospital the day of surgery, that even though you think, well, that's the first chance I have to meet someone, if you or any of your listeners know that they have had a particular problem in the past or a family history of something that happens, then by all means, get in touch with usually through your surgeon's office, 
uh, the anesthesia practice in that particular hospital, and there absolutely are provisions to where you can be seen ahead of time. The place that we do that in routinely happens to be in obstetrical care. Because when patients present the hospitals for obstetrical reasons, it's usually because the rubbers hit the road. Mm-hmm. And someone's uh, in labor and, and under duress of that. So that's hardly the time to first learn about what's going to happen if you have the advanced uh, opportunity to find out what's going to be going on. So a proactive patient for us is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But the need to come in days before with all but the most exceptional types of cases is probably not needed and probably not as safe as it would be because of those particular germs that lurk behind even the cleanest hospitals. So in that case, uh, somebody that's preparing to have a surgery, they obviously are speaking with their surgeon. Their first step after deciding on the surgery and everything else is to let their surgeon know if they've had a history of some bad reaction to an anesthesia, they're allergic to something, or they have adverse reactions to something. Uh, Should they request from their surgeon specific anesthesiologist? Let's say they heard from someone, oh, my anesthesiologist was really great, I'd like to have him. Can they do that? What, What kind of procedure should they have in their mind to be proactive? Well, most anesthesia practices are, almost all, are what we call hospital-based, meaning Mm -hmm. it's a hospital-based practice. We don't practice generally out in the community unless providing services for, say, a plastic surgeon's office practices or those types of things. But being hospital-based, along with a few other specialists like radiologists and pathologists and even the emergency room doctors or hospitalists, anesthesiologists having office-based practices usually are providing coverage, not just for the regular elective cases such as Christina was probably bringing up, but for emergencies as well, especially obstetrics where things happen 24-7. So most anesthesia practices covering a hospital have people providing services there, usually as a group, and that's to be able to provide those services 24-7. So what happens then is that if you were to want to come into the hospital ahead and see someone, that's a wonderful opportunity to be proactive. And, And at the same time, I don't feel that you should need to necessarily request one particular anesthesiologist to do a case unless there's a particular need, affinity, bonding that happens from a previous case It's a matter of personal preference, and a group will always try to honor that. But in covering hospitals 24-7, if my anesthesiologist that I'd like for a case I knew was on call with emergencies the night before from 1 a.m. until 6 a.m., and my case is at 8, I'd say, go home, go to sleep, your partner's Mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. So, well, this is, that's a good answer for me. I thank you for that. Uh, You... As anesthesiologists, you're really nurturers. I mean, it seems like the when a person goes under anesthesia, under your care, you're watching them in ways that people are never watched. You want to talk about that for a moment? Well, we really are nurturing nature then, aren't we? We'll talk about that more in another podcast. But yes, um, there's probably no time in your life, Christina's who had her surgery, or anyone under an anesthetic that you're ever more carefully monitored. Monitor just simply means we have lots of fancy equipment and not just your blood pressure, but things that measure how well you're breathing, how sleepy or unconscious you might be, believe it or not. Uh, and, and then your heart rate. And, and 
there's probably no time in your life that you're more closely looked at over and safeguarded to stay on a straight, narrow course to good health than under that time. And as a result, we, we often actually for the last few decades have likened how safe it is to have an anesthetic to being about as risky as going outside and getting hit by lightning. So we, we used to talk about that safety profile, except you forget, I'm not in California like you are. Mm-hmm. I'm here in South Florida, and Florida is the lightning capital of the world. <laughs> so I, I don't like to really use that analogy much anymore. But it is extraordinarily safe, safer than it would be when you were just at your routine sleeping at night. And, and, and that's because of how carefully you're being looked after during that time. In a few minutes, I want to talk about how you see the future of anesthesia with so many changes in medicine. But I, I want to ask a question. Uh, many times I speak with people that have had, uh, I'm going to say, out-of-body experiences or uh, supernatural experiences under anesthesia, and they talk about how they want to make sure that nobody is saying anything because they're going to hear it and it's going to influence them while they're under surgery. Many people are very focused on the milieu that's set up for them in the uh, surgical suite. Have you ever had any experiences with people having uh, or talking to them afterwards about out-of-body experiences or saying, oh, I was listening to my surgeon or I saw myself above uh, the surgical table? Any kind of abnormal or paranormal experiences like that? I get reports of it, but the reports I get are so far invariably after something's hit the media that a, a patient uh, may have seen something on TV about or, or on an on a expose about recall under anesthesia and, and those out-of-body experiences that, that you're citing. The fact is that when we're monitoring a patient for their, their surgery and their anesthetic depth, we do have ways of actually measuring brainwaves to know when someone is how far unconscious. And there are some surgical procedures when somebody's out and you, you need absolutely no recall of any kind where we can pretty well safely guarantee that someone will have no recall. However, there are other cases where someone is kept not in a fully unconscious state, but in a sedated state. And in fact, as they're first in that sedated state, even for a full general anesthetic, the first few minutes of coming into an operating room, somebody may have some recall, but hopefully in a professional setting to where we are absolutely cognizant of the privacy issues, of, of what's right and wrong as far as to say or have anyone over here. Uh, rock and roll music blaring is, is not the right milieu to come into an operating room in unless sometimes a patient would want it. And in fact, those patients who are concerned with that or those that want to be sedated may sometimes request to bring a headset in so they can sort of zone off to a little bit of their own music and take themselves in a good direction. So the variables are, are numerous, but make no doubt about it. We do have the techniques and ability to monitor just how asleep someone is that absolutely corresponds with the potential for recall. In your, in your history, you were uh, picked to, as one of the top anesthesiologists. Uh, what was the reason for that? Staying out of trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. It, it, it's true. It's true. That, that is one of the biggest standards. Um, 
when when you look at really what distinguishes someone after a career, uh, we all have exposure to things, and and cases sometimes can be pretty tough because the human variables are just that. They're variables, and, and we deal with life and death issues. We sometimes deal with patients who, who may be seeking uh, a surgical procedure as the only thing possible to sustain their life when they're already critically ill. So to say that things don't happen that could be expected is one thing, but basically an anesthesiologist who gets the, the accreditations over a career like I had, uh, number one, have to be well-trained. So in terms of the training and keeping up with continuing education, the highest standard of board certification that that can be accrued, those are all standards that someone brings and maintains throughout a career. But then there's the other issues of, of the, the communities and the, the litigious places that we practice sometimes, and especially when patients don't have the, the dialogue opportunity to interact, exchange, and to get to know their anesthesia provider as a human being. Then they realize that that person is there who is going to do everything that they can to look out for their well-being. And while there are never any guarantees in this kind of a field or medicine in general, patients generally are going to be far more understanding and not litigate after having an unfavorable income, uh, outcome uh, to this whole issue. So what, what it comes down to is also, I think, one of the things that I was fortunate in in my career of 25 years is in a litigious community, and we have that here in South Florida, I was never sued or even named in a suit for something, uh, and, and so that one little criteria there kept me sort of out of the spotlight, and that happens to be one of those variables that are looked at when after a career people designate you as a top anesthesiologist. That's the reality of practicing medicine in the United States in the, in the system that we have. In the world of medicine and surgery, most of us always think about, I'm, I'm having surgery, I'm going to the hospital. But over the last few years, we've heard the words outpatient surgery. And that means that people are having surgery in a place that's away from the hospital. Is there a difference in anesthesia in an outpatient setting versus in a hospital setting? Well, the wording you just used is not entirely accurate because Excellent. Out, outpatient surgery just means that you're not an inpatient, which means you're not staying in the hospital. So very often surgical centers that are outside of the hospital itself may be affiliated with the hospital. Almost always they're in a fairly short distance from a hospital in case in a truly emergency situation, things needed to be advanced to a full-fledged hospital setting. So Really, the, the word outpatient surgery akin to ambulatory surgery really means more that a patient not only comes in, but leaves the hospital the same day, not overnight. So um, in that sense, anesthesiology also was paramount in the development of ambulatory surgical procedures and centers because it was the pharmacy that we used that made that so so critical. Years ago, the medicines that were used had residual effects to keeping people sleepy for sometimes hours and hours later. And that's not someone who's in any way ready to go home, even with another responsible adult. So the pharmaceutical industry answered our call 
understanding, as I said before, that it's relatively a dangerous place to just hang out in the hospital even overnight if you don't have to. So most of the medicines that we use in an out-of-the-hospital, out outpatient or ambulatory surgical setting are very short-acting medicines. They're there. They're doing what they have to do when they're working. We turn off the, the gas, maybe, or, or the intravenous agent that we're using to keep somebody sleepy when they need to be sleepy, and they wake up a lot faster than with the medicines from years ago. That's what's made ambulatory surgery much safer uh, for having people ready to go home and take on with their lives the same day. We always talk about preventive things in medicine and prophylactic things in medicine. Is there anything that someone should do from an anesthesia point of view if they know they're scheduled for a surgery next week? Are there things they should do about their health, their mind, their body, their spirit that you recommend uh, from your experience that they can do that will potentially give a better outcome and also after the surgery, how do they come out of the anesthesia? We always talk about these are toxins we're putting into people. It takes a little time for them to really get out of the body. What are the things people can do ahead of time and afterwards to come out of anesthesia? Well, to, to begin with, um, I don't agree with the word toxins. Actually, most of the medicines that are used are done in ways, especially the vapors or the gases, that don't get changed. They just go in and out of the body in ways, and when they're gone, they're gone and in fact, they're not toxic the way their predecessor medicines were. Some of the gases that were used years ago were toxic in certain reasons and in certain patients to kidneys and liver. Not so today. Um, so there are things, though, that patients can do that make it not just safer for them, but give them a better outcome when they're waking up. And we already talked about one of them as far as discussing what their concerns really are beforehand. And whether it's done the same day or days before, that will give them that extra measure of, of peace of mind before they go off to sleep. But there is something that patients can generally know that they'll be told generally, don't eat or drink anything for a certain period of time before you have your anesthetic. And that's for very good reason. We spoke a little while ago about how important breathing is under anesthesia. Well, when you're asleep under an anesthetic, and if you have a tummy full of having just come from McDonald's, then one of the reflexes that you normally would have in case something should come up from your tummy and get near your windpipe would be that your ability to cough and to protect your windpipe so that you wouldn't breathe in anything that comes from down in the stomach, which by definition in the stomach is very acidic. If that gets down the windpipe, that in of itself is still to date one of the most serious consequences, potentially life-threatening, that can happen. It's called aspiration, and when it gets into the lungs, it's called aspiration pneumonitis in the lungs. And the best way to prevent for that, Glenn, is when we tell patients that for a certain period of time, before they're supposed to come in the hospital, don't have anything to eat, and then we'll also say don't have anything to drink. But that last part is not entirely so when I talk about drinking, because you need water to keep your blood pressure up and to basically keep your vigor. You don't need food, but if people go into starvation, they can do all right without some food for quite a period of time. Water is essential to life. And as a result, when we tell people don't eat or drink anything for six hours, eight hours before, that's between the surgeon and the patient. Do what they say. But for drinking water in particular... 
it doesn't mean well. They told me six or eight hours before, I'll go a whole day. I'll be extra safe. Mm. The fact is, when you do that and you come to a hospital setting dehydrated, that's not good at all. So water is fine to have. Generally, we say about four hours before not to have anything at all by mouth. But do not come to a hospital dehydrated. You just won't feel as well as you're waking up if you have a nice full tank in, in your system as far as fluids. So um, eating is one thing, but drinking in particular water is another. Now, that doesn't mean milk or things with fat, because fat in liquids takes a much longer time to go through your stomach. But plain old water is wonderful, and generally about four hours before surgery, it's okay to drink. Let's check with your surgeon first to make sure that that's all right with them. But the message here is don't go a whole day of trying to be a hero, not eating right. or drinking, and then show up and think you're as healthy as you could be. And then afterwards, also, probably hydrating is a good thing when you're capable of it coming out of the, not necessarily in recovery right away, but... You know, we start, we always think about giving somebody ice chips right away, but people should stay hydrated. And you're saying within the four-hour period, if someone took a drink uh, within an hour, uh, a sip of water, danger, no danger? Water, generally not. Generally, okay. there's still a conservative school that says a minimum number of hours before is better. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody's going to be a little dry, then generally many cases are done with an intravenous in place mm -hmm. where we can actually bypass the tummy right. and give someone the fluids they would need so that they're really not going to be dehydrated. The important part in recovery of, of showing that you can eat or drink something is that along with not only the surgical experience, but sometimes with some pain medicines in particular that are given after surgery, we need to know that somebody's able to at least keep water down before mm -hmm. they go home to keep themselves from getting dehydrated after they're back home. So ice chips is a start, but generally patients are encouraged to be able to at least drink and sometimes eat and drink something before being regarded as being home ready. What do you see as the future of anesthesia? Are there going to be obviously newer and better medications, but will there be delivery systems that are different or better? Do you see a, what do you see in the future? Well, there already are. We're already uh, in the future, huh? Well, we're already there, yeah. Uh, there are some new devices that are out now that are used for shorter procedures, largely administering sedatives. If you look, for instance, at all of the patients today having colonoscopies under anesthetics, it's not under a general anesthetic, as we were describing before, where someone's actually unconscious, but with sedation, with no particular recall, and certainly nothing that would be regarded as being a painful experience. So those sedatives that are used, the monitoring of them, the delivery of them, so that we know how someone's breathing and just how, how asleep they are for relatively shorter procedures, are things that are becoming largely mechanized even today. So it's not to say we're going to be out of a job tomorrow, mm -hmm. but with as widespread as anesthesia services are now, including not only operative theaters, but obstetrical areas where we're using epidurals and spinal anesthetics, having ambulatory surgical procedures, assisting in with uh, colonoscopy centers where that's done routinely. Um, these are all different arenas where our presence is known even recovery rooms, intensive care units, where our presence there to, to secure someone's well-being under more advanced monitoring 
and delivery systems where you want that human master there to uh, understand that it's an art and a science. Uh, there's still a need for anesthesia providers, but the future actually as far as ways that can actually provide sedation in a monitored setting, even by a machine, are not just in the future. They're here now in early forms, but they're here now. When I was traveling through China with a group of uh, healers, we were having an exchange of Eastern and Western uh, medicine and procedures, etc. And of course, one of the big things about China and anesthesia was no anesthesia and using acupuncture. Have you worked with any uh, Chinese doctors or have you studied any of the acupuncture as anesthesia uh, processes? Well, um, remember we talked about when we started about the three A words there about analgesia, amnesia, and anesthesia. Um, acupuncture fills a certain void, um, at least in the experiences that I had when I was training. And even in practice, acupuncture was used quite successfully, in particular for migraine headaches in pain management, as well as for patients who had multiple arthritis, different joints which may have had problems. It's used in, in Eastern medicine, though, for far more extensive purposes. Uh, for surgical purposes, as we deem it here, hasn't quite passed my level of standard of reliability yet, but sure as hell you'll see a 60 minutes re report of showing somebody having their appendix out under acupuncture. Belief systems probably play heavily into that. Uh, as wanting as a doctor of Western medicine training to learn more, I'm just now myself finishing an extensive 105-hour course in, in acupuncture to see really just how it works more than what it may be particularly good for. Um, surgery and acupuncture, it can be what I would consider now to be a wonderful adjuvant, in particular for post-operative pain management. Or, or nausea, even, or nausea, 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 and even pre-operative disposition, because mm -hmm. acupuncture absolutely ha has an impact on the way we think in, in a therapeutic way as well. But as far as, as we regard it to being surgical anesthesia, so someone will not respond to, say, the incision of a knife cut, mm -hmm. that, in fact, is the measure of, of standard that is used uh, for considering what we consider as far as the inhaled vapors of what we talk about as general anesthesia, as how we determine dosing. When patients move or they don't move as a result of, of a stimulus, of that kind of a stimulus. So... Um, Acupuncture has had in historical past an absolute place in healthcare in general, still does, and will continue to. Um, surgical anesthesia, as we know it, uh, I wouldn't say it's ever going to be quite ready for prime time as we understand what we actually do sometimes as surgeons to help get a problem solved. When I was there, they actually w I was looking forward to going in on a case where they would do that so that I could really see it. They wouldn't let us do that. But they did explain that they, they get their better results under um, uh, for patients that have uh, surgeries and procedures above the diaphragm, like thyroid surgery, for example. I wanted... Uh, I wanted to ask you another question uh, about pain management because anesthesiologists are doing that, but I, I want to hold off on that for a second. Christina, you have something? 
Um, yes, uh, my question is um, when people have go basically go under with anesthesia or laughing gas uh, as another example i've seen them come out of it and and they, it's almost like some of them have a terrible mood swing is that because something is playing on their subconscious level that is usually maybe hidden in their you know average day lifestyle and then suddenly they're those walls are taken down and this a, a very strong aggression comes forward do you, and i've heard oh it's because of the toxins okay <laughs> quote unquote but but have you seen that not particularly christina um i i think that that stresses do reveal themselves in different ways in patients mm. and uh somehow that if if we talked about before someone may not have the advantage of having their fears and anxieties allayed by just having that therapeutic discussion before, then perhaps when someone wakes up and now they actually do have the source of something that's uncomfortable and incision to deal with, that with that extra stress that was brought to surgery and then having a focus for where there's something painful, mm. that they could absolutely have that reach that point where their personality changes in response to that now-recognized stimulus. Mm. The way to avoid that, though, is the good preoperative interview. There really is nothing that we're giving that would upset the, the psyche, chemistry in terms of neurotransmitters, things like that, that would explain a mood swing. So I, I think that largely what you're describing are things that are individualized, mm -hmm. very often could be stress-induced rather than as a result from an anesthetic, and that um, I, I, I've heard about things before, but never with specifically a reference to a causative agent or just having an, an anesthetic in of itself. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We've seen in the emergency department with certain medications uh, that are bordering on anesthesia, anesthesia, emergent reactions uh, where people mm -hmm. come out of them a little more violent than you would think they would, uh, but uh, usually those go away very quickly. I don't see necessarily the mood swings, but I, I've seen some of these emergent reactions where people get a little bit violent, but that again is not true anesthesia that's working in an emergency department with sub-anesthetic levels of certain medications. Mm. Jeff, and, and there's, a, there's a confusion that happens when people are sort of in that twilight sleep. Maybe they were in a dream state and now they're coming up and maybe it was something involving something that reflected on a traumatic type of experience or, or they're going through a portion of their dream as they're emerging that they're confusing with waking up into a reality of a conscious state. So there is an interim period of time when, when patients who are, like I said, not just going under for the induction, but emerging, whether from a full anesthetic or even a sedation moment, that that is, in fact, the time when, when the most precarious things, in fact, can happen. So what you're alluding to, to there, Glenn, in coming to is absolutely something that does happen in a twilight sort of sleep, but instead of getting sleeper or controlling that airplane when they do the touch and go, if it's mm -hmm. not emerging nicely, the <laughs> situation, sometimes you got to give what, what I would call a tincture of time, just let a little, little time go by, the medicine comes out of the system, 
reassurance of that patient who's confused when they're waking up in that less than tranquil state, and that generally the time is what heals. Jeff, we're coming close to our end of the show, and this is the time where we ask our uh, guests for a health tip. Do you have something for us today? Well, yeah, I've been thinking about how we can share something that really points back to the fact that the stresses that a patient brings to the operating room uh, is something that only can work against them. So anesthesia is really about doing our best job in a healthy setting to alleviate the stress of not only the social situation, the fear of a diagnosis or, or a previous experience, but alleviating stress is something that takes time there, Glenn. Mm-hmm. And so the time well spent in the preoperative interview is one part, but the time spent afterwards to chill out a little bit uh, really requires one to take time to, and what I told you I was going to come up with something to act as a segue to our next show, take time to smell the roses. Uh, beautiful. Beautiful. And, and nice. let's talk about that for just one more moment. We are going to, we have a very special uh, interview that we're going to do with uh, Dr. Block uh, very soon. And why don't you talk about that for just a minute? Give us a little bit of what our next talk is going to be on from your point of view. Well, our next talk is going to talk about where many of the medicines used in my career in anesthesia, in fact, derive from the plants we talked about for before that we talked about as alkaloids. Uh, plant-derived medicines have been used since you brought up Eastern culture uh, for thousands and thousands of years. And if we think we've got all the answers with our Western medicine paradigm, we're wrong. <laughs> uh, we, we, have, we have a background from herbalists. We have backgrounds from, from many perspectives of how we determine general health that for millennia have been ascribed from the use of what human beings and plants find as they have co-evolved for thousands of years. So we're going to touch upon things, not only the medicines that are used in modern anesthesia, but those that are getting a lot of current uh, press coverage in terms of the botanical medicine of cannabis. And so we're going to delve much deep, more deeply into that aspect as far as a bona fide medicine that is used in part with other medicines in Eastern cultures where an Eastern doctor would never dream of giving you only one medicine, nor would an anesthesiologist to take you through a full case. They would normally give you a cocktail of medicines in the course of your anesthetic, but importantly as well, a good Chinese doctor in medicine is going to give you three, four, five different herbal remedies that together in balance is meant to restore and then sustain good health. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. We're looking forward to this next talk. You're going to be speaking at an international conference on medical cannabis, and you're very involved right now in Florida uh, in getting a bill passed and also teaching doctors how to use the medical cannabis. So that's going to be a great show that we're looking forward to in a few weeks. Very grateful to our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey S. Block, uh, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. And I'm also grateful and appreciative of all of my healers and teachers for keeping me on my journey and allowing me to do the things that I do, especially along with Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub. And we wish to say thank you for all that our 
watching our show or listening to our show, and we look forward to sharing with you in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy next week. And until that time, thank you so much, Jeff. We appreciate it, and we wish you all optimal health. <laughs> My pleasure, Glenn and Christina. Thank you so much, Dr. Block. We have learned a lot today, <laughs> and it sounds like we'll be learning a lot more. Um, and of course, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for being our medical guide. Another wonderful show. would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us today in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Block, please do so at his website, nurturingnature.com. What a beautiful website name, nurturingnature.com. And of course, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Again, we are always grateful to hear from you, your feedback, your comments and suggestions. Please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.